This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Bradley J. Berzer holds the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College in Michigan, where he is also director of the American Studies program. Dr. Berzer is co-founder of the online journal, The Imaginative Conservative, a fellow of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, and he serves on the board of several organizations, including the Center for the American Idea, Sapientia Press, and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. He is the author of several books, including J.R.R. Tolkien's Sanctifying Myth, Understanding Middle-Earth, Sanctifying the World, The Augustinian Life and Mind of Christopher Dawson, and American Cicero, The Life of Charles Carroll. His most recent book is Russell Kirk, American Conservative. Bradley Berzer, welcome to Thinking in Public. As I look back to my college years, it's hard to imagine anyone as a secular writer who had a greater impact on my mind than Russell Kirk. Professor Berzer, how did you come to write this, frankly, magisterial biography of Russell Kirk? Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moeller, and I'm glad to hear that you've liked Kirk for so long. I I first encountered Kirk when I was a senior in college, and that would have been, I was class of 1990, so that would have been the fall of 1989, at the same time that the wall was coming down, and of course, Reagan had just left the presidency. So pretty amazing, and I think for anyone who's conservative, it's what a magical time. So I first read The Conservative Mind that fall semester of my senior year, And I was very taken with it. I'd never encountered any right-wing thought beyond just libertarianism. And uh, to think in terms of kind of a Christian cultural view was pretty new to me. So I was quite taken with that. And then really over the next, gosh, 10, 15 years, I read Kirk, and I had talked and met with Mrs. Kirk, his widow, Annette Kirk, and had asked if I could go through her papers, and uh, she said no repeatedly, and then about six years ago, I got a call, and she said, Bradley, you know, if you want to come go through the papers, they're open to you. So it, it, was, it was such a blessing and privilege to have that call and that invitation and then to work with Mrs. Kirk on her late husband's papers. Well, when I saw the biography come out, my, my first thought was this should have been done long ago. And, uh, and yet, I, I also want to say, I, I think in one sense it was just perfectly timed because you did have the distance from Russell Kirk's life and death uh, in order to, uh, to gain, I think, some, uh, some even greater appreciation for the stature of the man and his role in 20th century American conservative thought. Well, I hope so. You know, I never had the chance to meet him. When I first read his book, and I was still a rather diehard libertarian at the time, so when I first read The Conservative Mind, I started composing, in my mind, uh, a very long response in which I was chastising Dr. Kirk, and I never sent that, and I'm not sure if that was good or bad, because I'm not sure how he would react, uh, how he had he received that. And of course, I was you know, early 20s at that point and full of energy and ready to take on the world. But yeah, I, I'm so glad that I encountered him when I did. And I think it did give me a certain bit of distance and clarity about him that I would not have had had I known him personally. So I did you know, on a few things I wanted to tread fairly lightly because I've gotten to know Annette Kirk so well. And originally, when I planned the biography, Dr. Mueller, I thought I would only go up to 1994 when he passed, or excuse me, to uh, 1964 when he met Annette. But after talking to the publisher and with Annette, we decided to go ahead and take it through his whole life. And now I'm very glad that we did that. But at the time, I was leery. 
because I thought, you know, do I really want to get into his personal life with his wife and his four daughters? But I think we, I was able to do that without getting too personal about who he was beyond what mattered, I think, for his intellectual life. You know, I was a high school student when I discovered National Review magazine in the high school library. Uh, I think I was probably the only reader of that magazine uh, in my high school. But that was my introduction to Russell Kirk. And uh, and then I, I probably began in a strange place in terms of his writings. The first Kirk book that I read was The Roots of American Order that had come out when I was in high school. And uh, so I didn't start with a conservative mind. I, I, I worked uh, backwards. By the way, I can think of The Roots of American Order as probably uh, the book that would have incited you the most as a young libertarian, as a matter of fact. Yeah, you know, and I do love that book. That's, uh, there is something very magisterial about that book. But you're right, I didn't come to it till much later. In fact, probably probably not till I got to Hillsdale did I read that book. So it would have been late 99 or early year 2000 when I read that for the first time. You know, you told me a great deal about Kirk that I did not know because, uh, you know, we, we all enter into uh, thought in a particular period in the stream, so to speak. And uh, by the time I came along in high school and college, um, and that was before the Reagan revolution, but it was, it was, it was taking shape. I'd worked in the Reagan campaign in 1976. And, nice. uh, and, and so th- there were comments uh, and references to Russell Kirk and, uh, and, and always with great, with, uh, great reverence. But uh, you told me the backstory that I really didn't know and, and didn't have much uh, access to un- until your biography. Uh, Russell Kirk's life was a-, a bit more interesting than I knew in the early years. Tell us about his experience in, in the Army and as a young man and, and how that became something of a, a platform for the development of, of his mind and-, and of his writing as well. Yeah, that's such a good question. And of course, we would never have had a Goldwater movement or a Reagan movement, I think, without Kirk. Goldwater expressly said that Kirk and Hayek were really the two touchstones for him. And Reagan, of course, later acknowledged Kirk as well with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So a lot of connections there. Kirk was born in uh, an extremely poor family, as, as poor as we can possibly imagine now, you know, pre-welfare, pre-New Deal. This, he was born in 1918, and really his father struggled all his life with various working-class jobs. Uh, on his mother's side, there was always a deep kind of intellectual strain there that went back uh, probably all the way to the Puritans. But Kirk came of age during the Great Depression, went off to Michigan State. After Michigan State, he got a master's degree from Duke, but then was drafted into the military. He, at that point, so about 1942, Dr. Mueller, he would have been, well, probably a a quasi, I don't think they would have used the term as lightly then, but he would have been a kind of peaceful anarchist at that point. A hardcore libertarian, had no use for government, often equated FDR with, with either Hitler or Stalin and certainly was very reluctant to become involved in World War II, not because he thought that the Nazis or the communists were good guys. He hated them very much, properly so. But he wasn't quite sure that we knew what we were fighting for. But when he was drafted, he was sent off to the Great Salt Lake, off to Deseret, Utah, and he was sent to the Tule Proving Grounds, where he spent the war as a chemical testing sergeant at a camp there, which is just irony of ironies when you think about Kirk's own views. But he ended up spending four years either in the Great Salt Lake Desert or down in Florida testing chemicals either in the desert or down in the swamps of Florida. 
And it was during that time that he really grew as a thinker. And he was still, by the end of the war, he was still pretty much kind of a pagan stoic. But he had had some experiences that really set him on the path towards Christianity. And so a lot of things happened for him during the war, not just his analysis of the war, but his time to read, his time to write, his time to correspond with people, which he found he had a lot of, but also just the majesty of the Great Salt Lake Desert, which really did, I think, for him, give him a sense of the divine. So he didn't come to his Christianity until sometime in the 1950s, and then formally he joined a church in 1964. But it, it was a long path for him, but I think a very honest one. So that, that was really a, a growing and thriving time for him in World War II. And though he came out of it probably still not totally convinced that the United States had used her power wisely, he certainly had used that time reflectively. And I think that set him on a, a good career from that point forward. You know, that reminds me of, uh, of the fact that many modern conservatives probably uh, find it difficult to believe that the conservative impulse in the period of the, uh, the, the late and mid-1930s uh, was to do everything possible to avoid international entanglements, including what was, uh, what was considered a war in Europe uh, until it could no longer be considered that way. In retrospect, it looks completely naive. Uh, to uh, yes. to have undertaken Russell Kirk's position, but it, it, it wasn't it wasn't quite so naive at least uh, before 1941. Uh, but uh, it, it certainly still seems somewhat so after that, and and so that was a surprising twist in the tale for me. Yeah, you know, I I had kind of expected that, but I it was also more extreme than I thought it would be, and I had a chance to go through his diaries. And of course, he never expected someone would be reading these things 60, 70 years later. But uh, yeah, just to see his anger towards the U.S. government, and even though he was, uh, he was very poor, he just did not believe that the government could do anything effectively at home or abroad. So the fact that the New Deal, he thought, was such a mess at home, how could we ever hope to solve the problems of Europe? So he, you know, And he did have, and I, I always want to stress this with people too, Dr. Mueller, he he had a genuinely very humane, and especially for his time period, extremely anti-bigotry, at least in his own views, whether it was towards Jews or blacks or anybody. And I, he was so offended by the way that FDR had treated Asian Americans here. He thought that anything that he would do for say, Jewish Europeans was just PR, nothing more, nothing real. Now, the great turning point intellectually will come at the University of St. Andrews, or at least during that time period for Russell Kirk. But I want to go back to another figure who, who I have found fascinating ever since I was in college, and that's Lionel Trilling. And, uh, you know, it was Trilling who made the point that, uh, in his judgment, there was no such thing as conservative intellectual thought. Uh, if there had been such a thing, it basically died with Edmund Burke and uh, and a few continental thinkers. And... Uh, and that was pretty much the assumption of the American intellectual elites in the early decades of the 20th century. Yeah, it was. And, I, you know, it's so in hindsight, it's so false because, of course, there were so many figures, whether we're talking about H.L. Mencken or Albert J. Nock or uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder or Rose Wilder Lane, Willa Cather. 
you know, there were so many figures who were deeply conservative in the 19-teens and 20s, and even into the 30s, that Trilling really had to have had blinders on not to see that. But, you know, and especially for you, Dr. Moeller, at, at, uh, you know, at, at the seminary, what an interesting history, because I'm sure, as you well know, Protestantism had really gone underground as a public way of thinking. Not that there weren't Protestants, of course, they were everywhere. But after the Scopes trial, there had been such a, such a blow against kind of stereotyping Protestants that it really wouldn't be until the late 1940s, early 1950s, where you have Billy Graham and then, of course, you have Christianity Today, where Protestants entered the public square again. And I think that Trilling probably had that in mind as he was thinking about conservatives, conservatism in the late 40s. And even, again, as, as fairly well known, even when conservatism arose as a political force in the 1950s, it was predominantly a Jewish and Catholic movement with Protestantism. Yeah, and Protestantism, of course, joining slowly over 20 years, and then with Roe v. Wade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but there, there, there's a little bit more to that story, and that would be a fascinating conversation, but, the, but Protestantism split in two. Uh, during that time. And so after the fundamentalist modernist controversy, liberal Protestantism went off and, and j- joined the adversary culture, as, uh, as Irving Kristol would call it, and, uh, and so yeah, became well a part of the left. And, and on the right, uh, you did have some towering figures. I think it's someone like Gresham Machen, the uh, Presbyterian. Oh, absolutely. And, and even someone like Walter Lippmann. Uh, it's hard to come up with a better barometer of public intellectual opinion in the U.S. than Lippmann during those years. He had great admiration for Machen. But those confessional Protestants who were theologically orthodox uh, began to uh, take refuge in what they called the spirituality of the church, which, uh, which basically meant that the church forfeited any overt political responsibility. And, and so you really don't find Protestants during that era, to make your, your point, contributing to statecraft. That's, uh, uh, and, and so the ones who are are, are are from the liberal mainline denominations, you know, whether it's John Foster Dulles or you, 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 you come up with the list. It's, a, it, it's right. a very different world. But I want to go back to the University of St. Andrews as we're speaking about Protestantism, at least in terms of, uh, of, of its role since the Reformation. Uh, how in the world did Russell Kirk... Uh, end up doing a doctorate at uh, the University of St. Andrews. And how in the world did that book, I think it's fair to say, change the political world unto this day? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And thank you for the clarification. I think what you said was exactly right on Protestantism. So where does Kirk come in on that? Uh, What an interesting thing that prior to his travel to Duke, which would have been about 1940, where he went down to get his master's, he had never left Michigan, so he was not a traveler. He was a homebody, and once he started traveling in World War II, going out to Utah, then back to Florida and so forth, he fell in love with it, and so he, he was always a very romantic figure, and he wanted to look abroad as he was thinking about where to earn the, yeah, his Ph.D., where to write his doctorate, and he found St. Andrews because he had come across a book by a professor, Professor Darcy, who had described kind of the beauty of Scotland and of St. Andrews and Kirk's family, at least on the Kirk side, was Scottish, of Scottish descent, even though his mother was of English descent. And he became pretty taken with that. And when he read the description of what St. Andrews was like, he thought, you know, this is what I want to do, and ended up applying, of course, got all kinds of fellowships to go. Michigan State, where he was teaching after World War II, gave him leaves to go off and live in St. Andrews for a long time. And when he was there, not only did he fall in love with that, but he also traveled throughout all of Europe, 
and then became a really an inveterate world traveler after that. But thinking about Protestantism, I think is pretty interesting here as well, because when he got to Scotland, he had never encountered the kind of hardcore John Knox Presbyterianism. He had met people in America, of course, and would have known of Machem and others. But that was not something that was really a part of his world until he got to Scotland and found that character. And it certainly intrigued him. There's no question about that. Well, that it, it the intrigued idea of the reformers him. And, yeah. Yeah, no, no I didn't ahead, mean to interrupt you. He, he, it certainly intrigued him, but yeah, but he wanted to press back even further. I think he probably found himself more at home in his uh, his real and imagined medieval St. Andrews rather than post-Reformation St. Andrews. I, I love the way you put that. It was imagined. <laughs> and I think, you know, Kirk, and, and for all of his strengths, I think also his weaknesses were very similar. He just romanticized everything. And so the idea, I'm not even sure what he thought theologically, but I think the idea of maybe standing with the king as an Anglican against these kind of, you know, what he would have seen as these these Presbyterian rabble-rousers, he loved that image. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can see that yeah. in, in, in his oh, later life and writings. But, but let's talk about his doctoral dissertation, because I, sure. I think even people who've been greatly shaped by the conservative mind don't know its origins. Yes, and I, I was shocked as well when I first read it in college, and I know every time I've had my students read it, they are as well. They see conservative, and they automatically think that they're going to get some kind of, of program or a platform or you know, a party platform, something that they can have a really good grasp of what does it mean to be a conservative. And yet I think Kirk in that dissertation which was published in 1953 after he descended it in 1952 at St. Andrews. If that dissertation is really more a book of questions than it is of answers. And as Kirk himself said, it was really more about a mood than it was about a platform. You're not going to find how to run the Republican Party or how we might defeat the Democrats or the liberals in there, because it's very poetic and very philosophical. At times, in the first edition, it's theological. It becomes much more theological through the next six editions, and especially with the final edition, number seven. But at the beginning, it was much more poetic. That book, Dr. Moeller, started because he had written his master's thesis at Duke on Speaker of the House under Thomas Jefferson, John Randolph of Roanoke. Roanoke had been very taken, or Randolph, I should say, had been very taken with Edmund Burke, and that's how Kirk got interested in Edmund Burke. And by the time he had gotten to St. Andrews in 1948, when he started his doctoral work, he thought, well, what happens with Burke? Now, here's Burke, this great figure of the late 18th century. Is it possible that his ideas continued? And so that was the, really the germ of his dissertation. But like his master's thesis, uh, he had no direction at all, and this worked well for Kirk. He had an advisor for both his master's thesis and his dissertation who trusted him, really hardly ever read anything he wrote. <laughs> and so Kirk would just write chapter after chapter, hand it in, and at the end, both his master's thesis advisor and his dissertation advisor accepted it. <laughs> Not a lot of feedback on those. You know, the dream, perhaps the hallucination of the doctoral student, is that uh, a dissertation will become uh, a bestseller that will, will change the course of thought. But that actually happened with, uh, with yeah. Kirk's dissertation. That's right, and how rare, of course. And when Kirk first wrote it, 
he kind of imagined that that Burkean thought was over. And so he was writing at the very end of this time period in which Burke's influence was gone. And so he ended it with T.S. Eliot, not having met T.S. Eliot at that point and still having kind of mixed feelings about Eliot. When he met him a year later, he felt they, they became very close friends and great allies, but he still had mixed feelings about him up to that point. But the publisher, Henry Regnery, who at that point had really only published German works of theology translated into English, that when he published Kirk's Conservative Mind, the, the original title was The Conservative Route and The Conservative Defeat, and Regnery suggested they give it a more positive title. And I think yeah, that made all the difference in the world when that book hit the market. And of course, the timing was right, right after Eisenhower had come into the presidency, coming out of the New Deal, coming out of World War II. In 1953, everything just worked perfectly for Kirk and for that book to make a major mark in public life. Well, of course it did, and uh, and it caught the attention of others who were also in what, what would become a, 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 a renaissance of conservative thought in the United States. And you can't talk about that without talking about National Review and uh, William F. Buckley, Jr. And uh, that story was more complicated than I think, again, most American conservatives would probably like to think. You know, we, we would be tempted to think that if you take the original – uh, say a year of National Review, and you look at the writers who are uh, who are contained therein, they would all be a happy group of uh, of like minded individuals. <laughs> but th- that was not yes. exactly the case. No, it was not. And of course, when you think of 1953, you know what an amazing year. You've got Leo Strauss, Robert Nisbet, Eric Vogelin, Ray Bradbury, all of these people publishing. But I think Kirk really by capture he captured all of that and gave it voice through the conservative mind. Buckley, of course, had already published God and Man at Yale, but he had taken his conservatism in a much more libertarian direction than Kirk did. And even though I think there's a lot of latent libertarianism in Kirk, Kirk is giving a stronger voice to social conservatism and traditionalism. So Buckley ended up coming out to Macosta, Michigan, talking to Kirk and convincing him to be a part of National Review. But that in and of itself, you know, the conversation between Buckley and Kirk, the kind of negotiations, whether Kirk would be on the masthead or not, Kirk had really made a major reputation. Buckley had made a minor one at that point. So I think there was a lot of compromise that had to go into that. And Kirk, he was a gentleman, as we talked about earlier, Dr. Mueller, he was one of the least discriminatory, bigoted persons I've ever encountered in my life. But one of the things he could not abide were former Marxists. He, he was very leery of anyone who'd been a member of the Communist Party. And so that meant Frank Meyer, James Burnham, a number of people who were writing for Buckley. Kirk, Kirk was leery that he would be on the same masthead with these guys. I think it's fair to say that American liberalism can be better defined as a cohesive and coherent system of thought in contrast to American conservatism. And that's because conservatism has always been about as much a habit of mind as a system of thought. It's always been about a confluence of conservative instincts and conservative traditions and, of course, conservative ways of thinking. But they weren't always considered conservative when they were current. And conservatism is not itself an ideology. Russell Kirk made that very clear even as he helped to give intellectual credibility and to further the intellectual aims of what became known as the conservative movement in America. 
you know, when you when you look at this and, and, and at the life of Kirk, um, I, I can't think of explaining that life without reference to uh, the modern age, uh, which uh, probably is not so well known now uh, as it was then. I, I, I'm honored in my library to own copies of the New Criterion and I, and, and and so many of the, uh, the the journals throughout history that have made such a, a partisan review and others that made such an important intellectual contribution. But modern age belongs in that list. But once again, it, it's not such a happy story. But but tell that story. Sure. Uh, Kirk Kirk had wanted to start a journal, and he and his friends, as far back as when he was at Michigan State as an undergrad, had talked quite a bit about forming some kind of journal that would promote what was then called the new humanism of Irving Babbitt and Paul Emmer Moore, not the humanism of John Dewey, the kind of secular humanism, but the Christian humanism of uh, those earlier figures. And they felt that with people like uh, not Steinbeck, but earlier than Steinbeck with Hemingway, Sinclair Lewis, and others, that a lot of the great writers of the teens and 20s, like Willa Cather, had been kind of shunned aside. And so they had been thinking as early as the early 1940s, let's start a journal. So as soon as the conservative mind made it big in the summer of 1953, Kirk's first idea was to take that success make it into some kind of periodical because he was very taken with the periodicals of the thirties and especially T.S. Eliot's criterion and Christopher Dawson's Dublin review and a few others. And he thought that that was probably the great way to influence opinion, but he had a, a very difficult time raising money for it. One of the things that's little known is that Kirk actually intended from the beginning for it not just to be a voice of that Christian humanism, but he also really wanted to get the voice of a number of Jewish scholars like Leo Strauss out as well. And he he had a very ecumenical view of this. But as it turned out, a lot of the financial backers, and in particular, one of the editors that came along with this was extremely anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic. And it just you know, for two years, Kirk really struggled with this guy, and not only over religion, but over foreign policy, editorial policy. And when this guy, and I'd rather not name him right now, but uh, it's in the book, uh, this guy who's, who's passed away now, but he at one point in a meeting made an extremely loud anti-Semitic comment, and that was it for Kirk. Uh, he was done at that point. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a noble effort, I think, on Kirk's part. I think his response was proper. But what a change you know, to have him make this journal last for two years and then he walks away after that. So who knows what would have happened with conservatism had Kirk maintained control over modern age. Uh, it was doing well. It was noticed everywhere. London Times, Times Literary Supplement, New York Times. Yeah, and people were reading it, Ray Bradbury, others. It, it was a major journal when it came out. Well, and that was uh, also indicative of the fact that journals were important. You go back to the Criterion and TSL. That's right. Everyone read it. Uh, it, it you, you really— Everyone. You couldn't be a part of intellectual <laughs> culture in Great Britain, or for that matter, in, in much of the United States, unless you read that journal. It's very uh, sad that today there are almost no journals of that kind of influence right. because people don't think or write this way anymore. That's right. And you weren't expected necessarily to agree with it. It was just as an educated Absolutely. person, you read it. 
Yeah, it's a different world. Imagine that. Imagine that. Yes, imagine that. Exactly. Now, I want to fast forward just a bit because Russell Kirk's life was so large, and of course uh, he wrote a a small library unto himself. But but let's talk about the conservative movement because we are on the other side of of what emerged in the 50s and 60s and 70s, came to full flower, you might say, in the 80s. But it's never been just one thing. And uh, even in 2016, with uh, obvious stresses and strains in the American conservative movement, uh, there have always been uh, uh, some stresses and strains. Can, can you kind of lay out the landscape of American conservatism, say, in the, uh, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, in, in, in a way that uh, demonstrates Russell Kirk's role? Yeah, I can. I don't know if I would be the best to do that. I can think of some others who might be able to put it together a little bit better. But I can certainly say, Dr. Moeller, that on the edge of the conservative mind coming out, you, there were about five strains of what we might call conservatism. I think I hate calling it right wing because Kirk never called it right wing and really didn't like the idea of a left right spectrum. But we can basically say that there were about five schools of thought that had rejected what might generally be called leftism or liberalism, uh, certainly progressivism, secularism, and we're very fearful of that. And it ranged everywhere from the new humanists we talked about a little bit ago, like Irving Babbitt and Paul Emmer Moore, Willa Cather, to Christian humanists like T.S. Eliot, to science fiction writers like Ray Bradbury or uh, Aldous Huxley, especially an older, an older Aldous Huxley or C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, to libertarians and anarchists like Albert J. Nock or Rose Wilder Lane. So there were a number of strains of thought, and Kirk really had read widely in all of those schools, and, and not only had read widely, but he also started writing. And, of course, one thing that's not known about Kirk is he made most of his money from writing his ghost stories and his horror stories and kind of quasi-science fiction and fantasy. Uh, made a lot of money doing that, actually, and uh, pretty stunning to go back and see the numbers of how many paperbacks he was selling of these horror stories. But a lot of that was what Kurt gave voice to. And I think that, at least from my reading, that kind of holding together of those various strains of conservatism only lasted for about five, uh, about three years, maybe two years at best. And it all started breaking apart after National Review came out. It didn't have anything to do with National Review. But once conservatism kind of went from being a popular fad and household name to actually trying to put it into practice, Goldwater would have been the first major figure to try and put some of this into practice. It lost a lot of its mystique and it became a practical thing. And once it became practical, then at that moment, everybody wanted a piece of it in a, in a very on the ground, immediate way. So I I really think there was about two years of kind of a almost utopian Pollyannish quality to it. And then it fell apart. And I, I don't, it's not Goldwater's fault. I mean, I love Goldwater and I think a lot of what he did was great, but I think just everybody suddenly grabbing for that thing, which was the new the new great thing, and how do we make it real? It was very difficult. Yeah, Conservatism, yes. sorry, no, say, especially, ahead, sorry. especially when it doesn't become real, uh, and instead of leading to a no, that's victory, right. it leads to a, a catastrophic defeat. That's right, and I, I think conservatism has always been best as a critical philosophy. It has not always been at its strength when it's trying to do something positive. Uh, and that's uh, maybe there could be a conservatism that's very active, 
But I think by its very nature, it's so decentralized and so intensely personal that I think it's hard to bring people together. Uh, I may be a little more sanguine about that, uh, and, and it may be because I, uh, I, I really came in, into my uh, intellectual formation at a time when there were such great conservative hopes, and, and then there were such great conservative gains. And, and by the way, during that right. time, I basically focused on two people, uh, uh, William F. Buckley Jr. and George F. Will. And I just read everything they said to read uh, the, the, sure. from a distance. And uh, I just if – they, if they said to read something, then I read it. And, and if it were advertised – if, if, if a book were advertised or reviewed in a National Review, then I just, I just went – and uh, I, I couldn't afford to buy it at the time, but I would go to the library and get sure. it and read it. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, I really got immersed in this, and then I was able to tell there are some differences here. And, uh, and, and so one of the things you haven't mentioned is the, is the distinction that became excruciating uh, in one sense uh, and profitable in the other, which was the, the union of traditional conservatism and neoconservatism during the 1980s. And uh, I'm just reminded as I'm saying that of how little Russell Kirk regarded the neoconservatives. Yes. At, at first, he kind of liked them, and especially on some of their domestic policy and uh, people like uh, James Q. Wilson and others who were dealing with criminology. He was pretty interested. But I think he became very leery of them when he realized that so many of them were working, were working so actively in D.C. I think, I think he got very distrustful at that point. So there's a lot of give and take. Of course, Kirk made some very unfortunate statements, which I think got blown out of proportion overall. But he made some statements about the neocons and their connections with Israel and other. And it came across in the late 80s as a little anti-Semitic. I I don't think it's as anti-Semitic. In fact, I don't think it's anti-Semitic at all. But I can understand how some of that was seen by especially Jewish authors as being problematic in the 1980s. But Kirk was just, as you know, as we talked about, he was critical of the U.S. intervening anywhere. And it didn't matter if it was in the Middle East or even in World War II. He was always very skeptical about that. But, yeah, that divide between the neocons and the conservatives in the 1980s was brutal. I, at that point, I was so – I was in college, and I didn't know what was going on. And, frankly, I'm kind of glad I missed that because <laughs> I didn't have to take sides then. But I, I did try and just be as honest as I could writing about it in you know, there, there's an analogy to this, I believe, in, in modern theology. I, I think the neoconservatives play the, the part in, uh, in political thought that neo-orthodoxy plays in, uh, in theology, in that neo-orthodoxy is, is helpful insofar as it critiques liberalism. Uh, and, and so if you're going to have a critique of liberalism, it's hard to do better than Karl Barth, because Karl Barth actually, uh, he had been trained uh, by, by, uh, by, by the, the, the leading figures in, in liberal theology, uh, Adolf von Harnock, you know, et cetera. And he understood what was at stake. The problem was he tried to create some kind of mediating position. And, uh, and, and I think that the neoconservatives did something of the same uh, and, and still do, as a matter of fact. They, they, they understood the failures of Marxism and they understood the, uh, the horrible moral nature of world communism. They understood the Cold War. They, they, un- they understood uh, political, well, geopolitics with realpolitik far better than historic conservatives did. The problem is they really did see – and, uh, and maybe do see government as, uh, as, at least in large part, the solution to the problem. That's right. And that's exactly what Kirk was worried about. Yeah. And, and again, I think, Dr. Mueller, that Kirk's very romantic view of the world 
and of the human person probably didn't gel with a lot of policy types in D.C. or New York. So I'm sure they thought this guy. Yeah, he's great. We admire him. But come on. (laughs) Well, you know, I I think there are probably some who just saw him as an intellectual crank. Uh, And uh, I I see him as a towering figure. But there is a warning in this that uh, there, there are no especially in the digital age, there are no uh, statements that you will not have to live with for the rest of your life. No, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. A couple of other chapters that I find really interesting, and, and in your book, you covered this uh, th- this in the most interesting way, so much so that I decided I had to look into it a bit further myself. Uh, what about the explosive exit of Russell Kirk from Michigan State University, and why? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, there are a lot of things that go into that. So that was in the fall of 1953. Kirk had come back from Europe. Of course, he's on fire, having gone all across Europe, seeing so many things. He's writing like mad. He's publishing all these short stories. He's working on novels. And he, he's a young man. He's, he's 35 at that point, but he's still relatively young in the way that he's approaching his career. Of course, he's been in the Army this whole time, and then he went off to do his dissertation, his grad work. So he, he doesn't have a lot of experience in the world. But once the book, once the conservative mind comes out and it's reviewed you know, well, well over 75 times in the six months after it's published, some major publications are reviewing it two, sometimes three times. He's appearing on national radio. He's showing up on these early television programs. He's a major national figure. He comes back to Michigan State, and Michigan State, right, when he gets back, has moving on a path that is going from being a small kind of traditional school that always had an agriculture, engineering, and tech side, but also had a pretty strong core of humanities. And when he gets back, this new president wants to take advantage of the GI Bill, expand the college as quickly as possible, and really move it from a college to a university. And that's just, that's not Kirk. It's not Kirk when it comes to government. It's not Kirk when it comes to business. And it's not Kirk when it comes to education. And he, as a young man, he fought that. But I think a lot of the older faculty either admired Kirk or saw him as kind of an obnoxious upstart. And Kirk just didn't handle academic politics well. And so he very openly came out against President Hanna at Michigan State. When he kind of lost the debate in front of the faculty, he resigned in protest and it made national news. And as charitable as Kirk was as a person, he never forgave Hannah and really harassed Hannah until Hannah, until Hannah passed away. I mean, it was, that was kind of a brutal, brutal relationship between those two. You know, it reminded me of the, the, the statement made by Clark Kerr, the, uh, the, the, the famous chancellor of the University of California sure. system during the 60s, who said, uh, That's right. he said, the reason that academic debates are so intense is because the stakes are so low. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I love that. So you can look back at this and, and see uh, and, and, and watch the explosion between Kirk and Michigan State University and understand, I, I think that faculty meeting could have been held virtually any university in America. That's right. Uh, over that's the last right. 50 years, the same, the same that's issue. Right. Um, yes, that's right. <laughs> what, one other big issue that, uh, that I find really interesting is the change in Kirk's mind uh, that, that led him into an embrace of, of the Orthodox Christian tradition. Now, he joined the Roman Catholic Church, but what, what he was identifying with was, uh, and, and th- this is a huge question for me, not Catholicism, but what kind of Catholic sure. was Russell Kirk? Because there's a part of me 
that was reinforced in reading your book to think that what Kirk really did was more resigned to a tradition uh, than to join a church. Is, is that at all fair? I think that's very fair. He did. It, it's hard. I would say this about him, and I think this is a, a fair statement. He was, even when he was a, an, a, an agnostic atheist, he was always an Augustinian. And I know that sounds weird, because obviously Augustine's a great figure for both Catholics and Protestants. Okay, well, and so that, there's a line of Augustinian thought that's always there. And I think for Kirk, it's what allowed him to move from kind of his stoic paganism into what he, uh, he actually labeled himself publicly in the 1950s as a Protestant, but he had not, he wasn't attending church. He wasn't, there was no denomination he was a part of by any means. And I I don't think he was sitting at home doing Bible study. I mean, it was just, I think it was something that he said, I like these people that I better than I like those who are atheists. And then when he met Annette in the early 1960s, Annette was a very hardcore Thomistic Catholic. And you know, she's a, to this day, she's a force of nature. And I think Kirk was pretty taken with that. He never bought into her Thomism. They argued about that until he died. But I think he liked the, the Catholicism. He liked the tradition. He was very leery of Vatican II. So he joins the Catholic Church in August of 64, and then Vatican II, of course, comes out a year later, and I'm kind of laughing in sympathy, because I'm sure this was just, it was as much a blow to him as it was to Tolkien and Christopher Dawson and some of these other figures. But I I do think it's fair to say that Kirk, even as skeptical as he could be, really did spend his life searching. And there's a kind of a, there's a nobility in that, even if I think he was always pretty restless about that. I don't think with Augustine, he ever totally found that, that, safety in God. I think he was still somewhat unsure, not about God, but maybe about worship. So even when he died, and I, and I think this is kind of neat, but I could see how someone would interpret it incorrectly. When he died, he had three books next to his bed. Uh, he had the Bible, he had Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and he had Chesterton's Ballad of the White Horse. And it, that doesn't surprise me at all, but those were the things that brought him comfort. And I I think even Annette has admitted to me, his wife, his widow, that probably Aurelius gave him as much comfort as scripture did. So yeah, that's a, there's an interesting tension there, I think. Yeah. And, uh, but by the way, I think most Protestants who convert as adults to Catholicism do it as a resignation to tradition. Uh, uh, Yeah, that would not surprise me. And and so I'm, I'm familiar with the pattern. And, uh, and, and I think you describe this uh, quintessentially in one sentence in your book, uh, where you write, in sum, one might readily state Kirk was a Stoic pagan who later added Catholicism to his Stoic <laughs> paganism, end quote. Yes, yes, and I think that's—I still think that's fair. A year, a year later, I think that's fair. Now— I'd ask you to fast forward to American conservatism, or I I actually would feel more comfortable in saying what's called American conservatism uh, in the the year 2016. And I'm not talking about the election or the candidates. I'm I'm just talking about the state of the conservative mind or or what remains of the conservative mind in 2016. Kind of update the argument to, to what you think Russell Kirk uh, would, would would say to American conservatives in this hour. 
I don't know exactly what he would say. I, I've thought a lot about this, and I wish I had a good answer for you. He was always driven by honesty in politics, and so he would happily – he liked Eugene McCarthy, for example, because he thought he was a deeply honest man. He liked the socialist Norman Thomas because they actually had known each other, and he thought he was an honest man. He voted for both of them because he thought they were honest uh, in the same way that he loved Goldwater and he loved Reagan because he thought they were honest. Kirk, that was the, the romantic side, not having any desire to be involved in real politique, whether at home or abroad. Kirk always went for who he kind of idealized, uh, both not idolized, but idealized uh, someone that he thought really was a good person. And he'd rather have an ineffective leader who was still honest than an effective one who was dishonest. So I think you know, if I could put myself in his shoes, and of course I'm of a different generation and I never knew him, but I do think that the two things he would be appalled by, and I don't think he'd be happy, but I think the two things he'd be appalled by in the present is that, number one, so much of conservatism has become a product. It's, uh, you know, whether it's someone selling a book or someone being on talk radio, all of those things are, can be good, of course. Nothing wrong with any of that. He sold books. He was on radio all the time. But the idea that we would make it a kind of product that could be sold or marketed, I think he would have been very offended by. And I think he would have been very worried about the current. I know you said you know, you're not talking about the candidates necessarily, but there's such a strong strain of populism, which he would have seen as too ephemeral. It's not something you can latch on to. Personality you can, but populism, not quite. Uh, so I think he would have been worried about that. But, you know, what we're doing, Dr. Moeller, this is exactly what Kirk thinks politics should be, where we can have a good 40, 45 minute, 30, 30 minute hour discussion. Uh, it can't be whether it's left or right sound bites. It can't be bumper stickers. It can't be slogans. It has to be serious discussion. That's what he relished. One of the things I most enjoyed in your book was uh, how you connect the dots between Kirk and so many other people, uh, from Flannery O'Connor on and uh, T.S. Yeah. Eliot, of course. And, yes. uh, and and I appreciate the fact you kind of report those encounters, warts and all, so to speak, uh, in, in all of their... <laughs> some aw- of them are pretty funny, aren't they? <laughs> uh, funny and, and, and excruciatingly awkward in a couple of cases yes. where you, you, you kind of feel awkward even reading it from, uh, from such a remove. <laughs> But I, I had a question I wanted to pose to you, and that is how in the because one of the things that I think makes Kirk Kirk is uh, is is that he operated in the mature years of his life from rural Michigan, uh, and uh, what he saw as uh, as land that tied him to a patrimony. How yes. was it that he was not more conversant with and engaged with the Southern agrarians? Well, you know, he grew up so he had relatives in the Union Army, and he grew up very, very pro-Lincoln and extremely pro-Union. And some of his earliest work that he did was on the Civil War. Uh, A lot of people don't know that, but he had actually edited some things in the 40s uh, from the Civil War. And he kind of, he kept that love of Lincoln, not not in the way I'd say Carrie Joppa or some of the more neoconservative Straussians loved Lincoln, but he certainly had a deep respect for him. And I think as much as he liked the literary qualities of the Southern agrarians, he was always a little bit leery about their positions on race, uh, which may or may not have been fair. But I think he never really quite identified with them until much later. 
uh, especially towards the end of his career where he started writing for Southern magazines and found a real appreciation. And one of his favorite students was a, a pretty serious Southerner, still alive, still writing. Uh, so I think there were a lot of connections there, but those connections tended to be much more personal at the end than they were in any way kind of bigger scope philosophical. But he certainly liked agrarianism. But I think when he read agrarians, he turned more to Chesterton and Belloc than he did to the Southern agrarians. You have written on uh, on Tolkien. You have written on Charles Carroll of Carrollton. You have written on uh, on Christopher Dawson and his uh, Augustinian mind. And uh, and you've also now written on Russell Kirk. Um, I'm fascinated by it all. I would define myself as, uh, more than anything else, Augustinian. I think the Reformers, the Protestant (laughs) Reformers, would say the same. Uh, Augustine is, of course, the most often non-scriptural source quoted in in, in their works. And, and I think you can also say that uh, that uh, Augustine's had this massive secular influence, which kind of makes your point about Kirk, uh, which you see in a range of figures, and especially in uh, conservatism uh, during the Cold War and uh, and realism uh, with someone even like uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who uh, yes. I, I believe was not theologically orthodox, but was Augustinian. It, it's possible to take Augustine's uh, understanding of sin, depravity, and the inevitable fallenness of the world, and thus the, the transitoriness of all uh, of all statecraft and uh, empires, and, uh, and, and not, uh, right. as, as I would have the greater hope, uh, embrace Augustine's understanding of Orthodox Christianity. But I, I connect at every single point of, uh, of your work, and I simply have to ask, what's coming next? Oh, well, thank you. I'm actually, and, and I would agree with you, and I, I would consider myself an Augustinian as well, which is one of the reasons I've been interested in these figures. Uh, I'm actually, if you're asking what I'm working on, I'm actually working on a biography of Robert Nisbet right now, and uh, that, that's been very interesting, but he's the most secular person that I've studied up to this point. And that, that's been a little odd. I, I, I haven't been able to anchor myself to him as much simply because he doesn't have that. He grew up in a Christian science household and then later attended an Episcopal church. But I, I don't think he ever really had any, from what I can tell and what I've read, no serious theological beliefs beyond this is kind of a good thing that people do. So I don't think a lot of Augustinianism there, but I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> How's that? Well, I will uh, look, I am look for, I, 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 I think a great deal of the secular thought of Nisbet. I look forward to reading that book. Oh, thank you. And Professor Bradley J. Berzer of Hillsdale College, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Oh, this, is, this has been wonderful. Great questions and great discussion. Thank you very much. I think it's fair to say that American liberalism can be better defined as a cohesive and coherent system of thought in contrast to American conservatism. And that's because conservatism has always been about as much a habit of mind as a system of thought. It's always been about a confluence of conservative instincts and conservative traditions and, of course, conservative ways of thinking. But they weren't always considered conservative when they were current. And conservatism is not itself an ideology. Russell Kirk made that very clear even as he helped to give intellectual credibility and to further the intellectual aims of what became known as the conservative movement in America. I really did enjoy this conversation with Bradley Berzer about his book, Russell Kirk, American Conservative. It's a big biography, but Russell Kirk was a big man in terms of his thought, in terms of his heart, in terms of his life. 
As I told the professor, one of the things I enjoyed most about the book is how he connected the dots between Russell Kirk and just about every other significant conservative intellectual in America and, of course, intellectuals far beyond conservatism as well. Russell Kirk can function for us as an example of a mind at work and a mind in action and a mind with very huge historical effects. There are a few men who can not only claim that their doctoral dissertation became a bestseller that changed an entire intellectual line of thought, but also that he was someone who saw many of his ideas put into action with a movement in terms of the larger culture that in many ways embraced his ideas, even if many of those people did not even know his name. Long before others saw these truths and were willing to make these arguments, Russell Kirk wrote, quote, Either order in the cosmos is real or chaos exists. If chaos reigns, he wrote, then the fragile, equalitarian doctrines and emancipating programs of the revolutionary reformers have no significance, end quote. What Russell Kirk was saying there is that if chaos exists, then it will reign. And if chaos reigns, then all those fragile commitments that modern Western democracies have made to human rights and human dignity are simply going to collapse. In this sense, Russell Kirk was a prophet, but he didn't mean to be a voice merely crying in the wilderness. One of the interesting things about Russell Kirk's life and his writing is how he intended for his writing to change thought and to change minds and to become an argument that had to be reckoned with. Even as others had considered conservative thought to have ended in the 18th or at least in the early 19th century, Russell Kirk was absolutely committed to reinvigorating and to recovering conservative thought and to make it at least a matter of record. But of course, it became far more than that, as evidenced by the continuing relevance of his book, The Conservative Mind. But conservatism can't be reduced to an ideology, even though, of course, there are genuinely conservative ideas and ideals. The life of Russell Kirk takes us only so far. Modern conservatism is going to have to chart its way. But if Russell Kirk could say something to us in this day, I believe he would say there will have to be an intellectual reckoning with truth and with tradition. And without adequate respect for those two pillars of conservative intellectual thought, such thought will become impossible. But so also, I think Kirk would say, would the project of civilization itself. Once again, thanks to my guest, Professor Badley Berzer, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.